Lord God, thank you that salvation is found in no other than the Lord Jesus Christ. In him and him alone we worship this morning. And Lord, we just come before your presence as your humble servants. Lord, help us to learn. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And most of all, Lord, we want our goal to be your goal. And that is that we walk out of these doors a little bit more conformed to the image of your perfect son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, let me welcome you to uh, worship today and uh, give you a couple of reminders. Most of you could say this for me because you've heard it, me do it every week for 300 and somewhat consecutive Sundays. But anyway, uh, it's important. It's important. And, uh, and the important part is this little blue card. It's a connection card. A connection for a reason. Uh, if you're a believer, you must be connected to a body, right? And, and so we want to know who you are and about you. And so if you're a, 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 a first or second time guest with us, we would love to know you're worshiping with us. So please fill that out. If you want to know more information about the church or about a relationship with Christ, uh, you, can, you can check those boxes and we'll be happy to get back with you. We also have prayer cards and everybody can fill one of those out. Um, another thing we want to share today is our Sunday night schedule in September is going to be odd, okay? First of all, Labor Day, we're not going to meet tonight. Uh, second of all, 
uh, one banner, which involves our choir, a lot of area choirs and, and, and an orchestra at Ridgecrest. We'll be over at Ridgecrest Baptist Church next Sunday night. I didn't put a time on there. Sorry, 6 o'clock. Okay. Uh, so we won't have anything here Sunday night. Uh, the following Sunday, 17th, we'll have a worship service, a regular worship service at 5.30. And then we're going to have another worship service on the 4th Sunday. Normally, we wouldn't do it on the 4th, but we're off so much, we decided to go ahead and do it on the 4th and have the Lord's Supper on that 4th Sunday. What is that? The 24th. So make that a note. We'll try to reflect that in the bulletin moving forward. Uh, and just that is uh, the, the Sunday night schedule uh, for September. All right. Well, let's uh, continue on with uh, some songs of worship that point to uh, Psalm 46 today. How great thou art.
Lord, sometimes you cause things to happen in our life where we have no choice but to do nothing and be quiet. And sometimes that's precisely the only thing that will help us. We can get quiet enough and still enough to hear your voice. Um, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for letting us know in every conceivable way that you are the Lord God Almighty, the sovereign King in charge of all things. And Lord, we just come before you as your humble servants, uh, thanking you that we have the opportunity to give back to you what you blessed us with. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's interesting in a passage that talks about depending on God, that talks about um, being still, that there's reference to the last days. Because they're really one and the same, aren't they? The more we know about what's going to happen in the future, the more we can have confidence today. Let's sing, Even So Come.
The Lord uses psalms and hymns and spiritual songs like the ones that we have sung today to rescue or sustain our faith in certain times or a certain time of our lives. You know, that's how a favorite hymn becomes a favorite hymn. You commit it to memory and you sing it over and over again to your soul. In other words, we're hearing truths in a song that God has designed in such a way to awaken our souls. We're told in the Word of God in Ephesians 5.19 that we should address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's actually a command and it flows out of being filled with the Spirit. We are to address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We've been doing that, have we not, throughout the summer? Because I hope you realize that the book of Psalms is a book of songs. There's 150 of them, and it is the Hebrew hymn book, and they're songs. There are other songs written that are not in the Psalms, that are written by godly men who love Christ. And we know how they encourage our hearts. For instance, there are so many truths in this one 
that Charles Wesley said if he could have given up every song he had ever written to have written this one, he would have. Wow. It's called When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross. Just listen to how this is designed to awaken your heart. When I surveyed the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, I count as loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Watts takes you back to the dusty hill of Golgotha. And with eyes of faith, as we survey the wondrous cross, we see the Prince of Glory forsaken by his Father and dying in anguish because of your sin, not his. And when that happens, we will pour contempt on all our pride. We learn in verse 2 that there is an ugliness to my pride and a boasting and a preoccupation with earthly things that often charm us. But this verse reminds us that we drop everything in view of the cross and we join with the writer in declaring that his death on the cross was in my place. Listen to it. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. He gets up close and personal, wanting a response from us. As Watts says, See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love? And sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown. What is that for? Well, takes you right up to the cross, where in your imagination you can feel the thorns, you can feel the torture, you can sense the pain, all for you. And then that incredible verse that finishes out that magnificent hymn is were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small love so amazing so divine demands my soul my life my all Douglas Bond says Watts imaginative comparison of all the temporal riches of nature heaped up as a present on one side and the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the other side for my sins on the other Make us hide our face in shame. Makes us blush before the Lord. This can drive our knees to the ground at the foot of the cross. You see, hymns are designed to move your affections with truth, right? Psalm 46 is similar, but Psalm 46, the theme is that God is with us. I don't know what you think about that, but when I look around in my day, I'm glad God is my refuge. I'm glad he is my stronghold and my strength. So in this psalm, throughout it, broken down in the way it is, verse 3 ending with selah, musical interlude for you to think about the fact that you shouldn't have fear. Why? Because God is your refuge and your strength. Your very present help in times of trouble. He is with you. Beginning in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. So God is even with us in his holy city. And there is certainly the truth that it's his holy city now. 
Because outside of you, the waves can be raging and the storms uh, difficult. But on the inside, there's joy in the city of God. There's joy for the people of God. But yet there is an eternal city that the Lord is preparing for us, and we wait for that. And in verse 8, Selah, don't forget that. Think on these things at the end of verse 7. When you get to verse 8, here we are at the conclusion of the psalm, and here the Lord invites us to be still and to know Him. So in light of the fact that Psalm 1, Psalm 46, 1 through 3 tells us that there are difficulties. Mountains may be moved. Waters roar. Mountains tremble. He's with us. He's with us in the holy city. Now, he's wanting us to think. He, he wants us to stop long enough and think about the truth in this particular psalm. And what does it mean for us? Well, let's begin reading in verse 8. You should know this psalm by heart by now, right? Verse 8, come, invitation, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In verse 8, we begin to see descriptions about God. There is a reason that we're invited to behold the things of the Lord so that we are still and so that we know Him. And it's interesting now that the psalmist is going to begin to give us descriptions regarding who the Lord is. And he's going to help our spiritual perception about things. So, the Lord invites his people to be still and know him. Let me give you two things to think about. Number one, the Lord's peace is sovereignly accomplished. Do you hear that? Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Now, we are told often in the Word of God to remember the mighty works of God, aren't we? As a matter of fact, that's a good thing for you to do because in the Old Testament, the Israelites are reminded over and over again, remember the former days. Remember what the Lord God has accomplished. And this is often the way it's given to us in the Psalms. For instance, Psalm 66.6 says, our 66.5, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. Again, Psalm 77, verse 11. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Now, that is a general call for us to remember the works of the Lord. Isn't he mighty in his deeds? We think about how he has worked in our lives, and his works are obvious If you're a believer. But I want you to take note that the descriptive reason for you to behold the wondrous works of the Lord is different in this text. As a matter of fact, it tells you what it is. Come behold the works of the Lord. What are the works? Is everybody locked into the Bible? Are you? What are the works? How he has brought 
desolations on the earth. Now this ought to automatically begin to push you toward be still and know that it's probably not this little devotional tidbit that you think it is. We, mis we misinterpret. Be still and know is in the context of desolation and destruction. It is not first a personal devotion. It is first cosmic and visible for the world to see that Jesus Christ will make all things right in the future. It's an understanding for us to pause and to be still. We'll get to that in a few moments. But come behold the works of the Lord. The Lord has brought desolations on the earth. This is nothing short than devastation and destruction. If there is a historical context, we learn that it's most likely 2 Kings 19 when you have Sennacherib's army surrounding Jerusalem so that the angel of the Lord shows up in power and 185,000 Assyrians die. So what do we do as God's people? We wake up and say, wow, that's desolations. That is destructions. And God Almighty should be remembered that he actually did this in the past. Can we not agree that in the past our Lord has done this? We think of the flood in Genesis 6. We think of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Word of God. We think of the fact that he overthrew Egypt mediated out on Egypt all those plagues. They thought they could serve false gods. They thought false gods existed, but God says, let me show you who's the real God. And so he does that as he mediates out those ten, ten plagues culminating in the death of the firstborn. How about when he overthrew Babylon? How about when he overthrew the Assyrians? He's exemplified this power and strength of his arm and judgment overthrowing kings and kingdoms and bringing desolations on the earth. The Lord has done this in the past, but keep in mind, he's also promised that he will do this in the future. And this is what this psalm is reminding us of, not only to behold the works of the Lord in the past, but for you to put your mind toward the fact that God is even in control of the future. Put your mind on that particular truth. So, is this a humble word for any nation? Yes, it is. Any and every nation that stands in opposition to the kingdom of God and his Christ can expect a devastating end. It has always been that way in the past, and it will still be that way in the future. And when I say words like desolation, destruction, devastation, I know I see it on your face. You say, Pastor, that's just uncouth. It's uncouth for you to talk about devastation and destruction in the nice country we live in, in America. I want to remind you that that's not the way the persecuted church in the world would think about it. You're in America. You're rarely ever persecuted for your faith. Unless you're really willing to wear it on your sleeves. Unless you're really, really willing to put your faith on the line. But I tell you, Persecuted Christians across this world that have had their, their women and their children kidnapped and trafficked. A church that knows what it's like to sense fear of persecution at every turn. People that we know that have faced militant Muslims who throw their children into the fire. When they hear that God is a God of desolation, they pray and they cry out to God so that 
these desolations come so that God's justice will be on the face of the earth today. They know what it's like to pray like this. And here's what I want to remind you of. We are soft. We have a very soft underbelly. Let me ratchet it up, tighten down the bolts a little more. We have sissified the Christian faith. The God of the Bible, both old and new, is a victorious warrior who has wrought and will bring desolations on the earth against those who rebel against him. That is the truth of the Word of God. We often don't want to see that because we like nice Jesus. We don't want to hear this unpopular side of the fact that those who rebel against God will face devastation. In verse 9, the Lord's goal is not to make war and bring war against those who make war, but actually the Lord is the Lord who will make wars cease. Isn't that awesome? Verse 9, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. Burns the chariots with fire. So we have the Lord who has wrought desolations on the earth. And we have the Lord who makes war cease to the ends of the earth. This is looking to the final victory, folks, that we were singing about. Where there will be no more war. The picture of the Lord who brings judgment is for ultimately ushering in the kingdom of peace. Now, I believe that this kingdom of peace is the prophetic vision of Isaiah 2. Read that in your cursory reading time. Isaiah 8, Isaiah 9, and Isaiah 11. And the Bible teaches us that when that takes place, swords will be pounded into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, and the people will learn of war no more. Don't you look forward to that? Now, let me help set your mind on this. War... It's part of what it is to be in a fallen world. That's why this is so strong in the text. There's something in us as Americans where we are sanitized about war. War is one of the worst reflections, though, people, you could ever imagine on, fallen, on this fallen world. Just think of the brutality of war. Think of the loss of life. Think of man's inhumanity to man. And the Lord says, there's coming a day when my victory will be complete and all wars will cease. That's good news. The Lord will put an end to war. In Old Testament language, the imagery is underscored in verse 9. Our God will destroy the weapons of war. The weapons that are used to destroy human life. God is going to put an end to them. He burns the chariot with fire. Why the chariot? Because the chariot was the war wagon. It was the weapon. It was the place of the weapons. Where the formidable military hardware in the ancient world will be stored in the chariot. So the image isn't of a God who simply wants war to cease. But it is a God who will intervene in time and space on behalf of his people and cause wars to cease. There are Christians killed in war-torn parts of this world almost every day because of their faith. Just read about Nigeria. Just read about some of these places where people are killed. Every, there have been more people martyred, I think I'm right on this, in the last 25 years than in the history of the world. Now think about that for a moment. You don't know that. Check my dates. I could be a little off. But the last 25 years, we don't hear it in the media. We don't know about it, but it's taking place. So I thank the Lord for our Christian liberties in the United States of America, and you should too. 
the protection that he's afforded this nation. And there's no nation on the face of the earth like ours. And I believe it was because, in the past, of the blessing of God. Yet our perspective on the world is very unlike the rest of the world. Keep this in mind. The rest of the world sees the violence. They see the brutality. They see the terror. They see the horror, upfront and personal. So, the idea that there's a sovereign Lord who is in heaven, who notices, and will one day intervene, he will break the bow, he will cut the spear in two, destroy all weapons of war, the people will learn of war no more. That's their hope in places in this world. We don't know about that. They look for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who loved them and gave himself for them. They look toward that hope. We know very little of that. There will be no more need for war because all of God's enemies will be wiped out. That doesn't sound like popular preaching in our day, does it? But that's what the Bible teaches. Hear hear me, it doesn't pay to be one of God's enemies. Hear me, young people, everybody, no matter what your age, it does not pay to be an enemy of God. This is what the text is telling us. There's something spoken to us in the psalm about safety in the city of God. Do you remember that? The Bible teaches us that he is our refuge in this city. And yes, no matter where we are in this world, there's safety in the Lord. But one day, all the war and all the chaos will come to an end. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. Our God will bring peace to the ends of the earth. In Revelation 19, 11 through 21, I'm not going to read that text for you, but we see the Lord Jesus Christ returning in power and glory in person to this world. Do you believe that Christ will return? He will judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. This is our great hope. Our hope is not in a political party, no matter what it is. Our great hope is not in a political candidate, no matter who he is or she is. Our great hope is not in people or our next election or our last election. Our hope is in the reigning king who reigns today and who is returning in the future, and he will establish a kingdom that will have no end. We need to keep our focus, right? We need to be engaged, yes, in culture. We need to be engaged in standing for the truth. We're responsible as citizens on earth, right? But remember, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Kings are raised up and kings are toppled over. Governments come and governments go. Countries rise and countries fall. But there is coming a day when that stone that was cut out with no human hand, that means he was God, there's coming a day that he will strike the image and he will break every bit of it into pieces. I just gave you the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2. Do I need to preach Daniel again? Right? Remember when we went through Daniel? That stone will become a great mountain and it will fill the earth. In chapter 7, as Daniel looked on, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Oof! His clothing was white as snow and his hair 
on his head was pure like wool. A stream of fire issued and came from his mouth, and a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the book was opened. Hear me, the book will be opened. And Daniel will remind us, I need to read this one because it's so good. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's the king that we serve. So, this kingdom is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, for one, believe that Daniel 7 is telling us of the already. Because our king's not waiting to reign, folks. He reigns now. When he took his seat in glory, having purged you from your sins, he reigns. He's not waiting to reign. He reigns. But there is an already and not yet. And that not yet, I think, is spoken of, projected out, trajectory out in Psalm 46, that our God reigns and he will reign and all wars will cease one day. That's what the Bible teaches us. Now, I'm sure most of you hung around for verse 10. You stuck around in here today for verse 10, did you not? I mean, if you, if you're, if you know anything about Psalm 46, yes, we, we see this. Be still. All right, think of the context. Context is king. Desolations on the earth. Past, present. Makes war cease to the end of the earth. Breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the chariots, the war wagon. No more weapons. Be still. See the context? Be still. And know that I am God. He gives some straightforward indicative statements. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Unless we've forgotten Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So here is the God who brings judgment. Here is the God who will cause wars to cease. And so we see first in this passage, under the heading of be still and know that I am God, that the Lord's peace is sovereignly accomplished. He's going to do it. Breaking of the bow. Smashing of the spear, war wagon gone. But here's the second thing. The Lord's praise will be universally announced. That's what you have in verses, verses 10 and 11. It's an announcement of universal praise that belongs to the exalted king, who is Lord over all, right? So until that happens, until he's exalted and there is no more war, what are we supposed to do as the people of God? Well, it's a call for deep reflection and fervent you may not have seen this. Deep reflection and fervent military mission advance. Why do I have confidence in the Great Commission? Because I will be exalted among the nations. Why do I have confidence that I can share Christ with anybody I come in contact with? Because he has all authority and he will have, be exalted among, not maybe, he will be exalted among the nations. So this gives us that missionary confidence and proclamation to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, in view of God's awesome display of sovereign power and might, 
What is our response to the Lord Almighty? Cease your striving. That's the KJV. Be still, ESV, and know that I am God. I know this verse is often cited again in personal devotion. That's all fine and good. Yet I want to remind you that in its true context, it is public, it is cosmic, it is universal. And so there is a sense in which the command can be, stop your fighting. There is a sense where we have a twofold command here. What do I mean by that? It's possible that he's talking to those who are in opposition against him, right? You be still and you know that I am God. It's possible that it's against his opposition that is opposing him, okay? But it's also given to the people of God. In that sense, it's a command to believers. It's a command to the citizens of Zion. Lest y'all think I'm the only Bible teacher who's ever dealt with that little bit of conundrum, listen to Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. Hold off your hands, enemies, and sit down and wait in patience, believers. Do you see how it brings both of those things together? Stop your striving, cease your striving, be still, know that I am God. So it conveys the idea that believers are struggling. Anybody struggling? Anybody striving? Well, oftentimes we fail to trust the sovereignty of God when we're striving. When we're not being still, we're not trusting the sovereignty of God. This is real. You're in your home, metaphorically speaking, and the wind picks up and the storms are coming. This happened a few months ago and I lost my power. Oh, shame on me. Pitiful me. I lost power for a day and a half. I mean, in America, we're like, world's falling apart, right? Shame on us. Shame on us. There's a lot of people in the world that they don't have power at all, right? And never will. But here's the deal. You've got winds picking up, storm coming. And in my home at 6200 State Highway W, I'm thinking, am I going to be safe? Metaphorically speaking, if we have a storm coming our way, right? You're thinking, am I going to be safe in here? Well, this is how Christians are. Here we are in the midst of Zion's city, the city of God, where God himself is with us. Just as he's promised, that it will never be shaken. And we hear the tumult and the roaring wind outside and the raging sea. We feel the pressure from the outside. We must come to realize that God's presence is our stability. You don't need to be afraid. We are fearful, fearful every time the house shakes. We are fearful every time the waves crash in against the house. We should not be fearful. The Lord says, as it were, be still. You don't need to worry and fret and run here and there trying to close up this hole and trying to strengthen this gate in the house. You can be still. You can be still. Jonathan Edwards said, we must be still in the inward frame of our hearts. Are y'all listening? You'll miss something. Our, we must be still in the inward frame of our hearts with a calm and quiet submission of soul to the sovereign pleasure of God. Whatever it be in no wise inwardly quarreling or finding fault with God. You're guilty. Go ahead and admit it. We all are. Quarreling and finding fault with God. To be still is to yield to the sovereignty of God. Did you know that? Quotes over. To be still is to stop striving against the Lord who created you and is Lord over you. No amens? 
Are you thinking with me? To be still is to stop, stop striving against the Lord who created you and is Lord over you. You need to submit to the sovereignty of God who is the Lord God Almighty. You need to rest in Him in a way that you're not anxious and you're not fretting and you're not worshiping, worship, working yourself up into a tizzy trying to figure out what God is or is not doing. Or worse yet, Lord, why are you doing this to me? Ever been there? Be still means to stop. It means to cease striving. <laughs> Wartime. Cease and desist is really what this means. You need to recognize that you're not God. Be still means to stop. Now, if we did a theology course today, Theology 101, and I asked this question, I don't think any of you would make this huge theological error, but what if I ask the question, are you God? What would you say? I mean, if you miss this one, you're in trouble, right? But guess what? When we worry and when we fret and when we try to secure our own lives, we are simply pretending as if God does not exist. Now, I know we're all frail, and I know we all struggle, but I'm telling you, folks, you know that the Word of God is true. When it says that God is sovereign, when it says that he controls all things according to the counsel of His will. He's not making that up. That's what the Word of God says. And we take it. We, we, we live in it. We rest on it. So be still and cease striving. Then the psalm says that I may know that I am God. That you may know that He is God. Again, if we'd only take the advice of someone like Job who says, I know I cannot ascribe with my lips anything to you that is un... I cannot say that there's some unseemliness in God. But there's something inside of all of us inherited by Adam to all of us, right? Where we want to put God at fault in the way that things are going in life. Adam did this straightforward, up close and personal. Lord, it's that woman you gave me. <laughs> Did he not? He's finding fault. He's casting the blame. And we often think like this. Lord, you could bring peace to my family. And there is no peace. So it's really your fault. And whether we actually say it, we think it in our minds. You could bring salvation to my loved ones. But you haven't. So it's your fault. You could get me out of this hole that I am, okay, I know I dug myself into this hole, but you could get me out of this hole. It's your fault. Folks, be still. It says stop ascribing fault to God. That's what it means. Stop blaming Him. Bow before Him. The Almighty is more glorious and holy. He's wiser. He's more sovereign than you will ever be. Don't you love the second part and know that I am God. So in our cessation of striving and in our stillness, we need to know that God is God. You know, I, I gave a statement last week about Elizabeth Elliot, and she's one of my favorites all time. She had a bluntness about her. She writes this about Psalm 46. Simply shut up for a change. 
She says, it's amazing what the quiet holding of the soul before the Lord will do to the external and seemingly uncontrollable tumult around us. Quit whining, quit complaining, quit charging God with wrongdoing. Quit giving voice to your bad theology because it's stunning and remarkable and amazing what simply holding to the Lord in quietness will do to all the racket that's on the outside. Whew, that's good. When she said that and I read that, I was like, man, right? Straight to the heart. So to be still and know that he is God is to know that he is our refuge and strength. To be still and know that he is God, according to Psalm 46, is to know that he's your very present help in times of trouble. To know that God is God is to know that he's the God of verses 4 through 6. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. To know that he is God is to know that he's the God over Psalm 46, 8 through 9. He's the God that will cause wars to cease. He's the God who breaks the bow and cuts the spear in half. He's the God who puts the end to all the weapons of war. To know that he is God is to know that he's sovereign. Think about this for a moment as we move toward the end. Application. To be still and know that he is God is to put our fingers over our lips. That's what Job did, by the way, in Job 41, verse 3. He said, I've reached this point. I'm not going to say another word. I'm just going to put my hand over my lips. Sometimes this is good theology. Just be quiet. Just be quiet. And that's what Job said. In the face of a God that he couldn't figure out, that was holier, that said to him, where were you when I made everything in this world? Where were you, Job, when I created the world out of nothing? When a God like that speaks, you just, you just put your hand over your mouth. You're still. And you're quiet before the Lord. Why? Because not only does he control the big things, but he also is over and controls the little small details of your life. And until you figure that out, I wish I could just dump this into your head. Until you see that he's the God that we know works all things out for your good and his glory to them who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you love him? Qualifier number one. Qualifier number two, are you called according to his purpose? And if you are, every detail in your life is held in the hands of the master. He is. You have to understand this. There's never a time when he has to apologize because he wasn't paying attention. He's sovereign. Can we not join Job and put our hands over our mouths and just say, well, that's good Bible imagery, by the way. Just put your hand over your mouth. He's sovereign. You need to rest in that, people. Rest in the fact that he brought desolations in the past. He'll do it in the future. Why? Because he's sovereign. He has all authority. He will cause wars to end and cease. And he's in control of this world. He does all things according to the counsel of his will. I don't, I get it. My human default setting is not free will. My human default setting is God is in control. God is in control. That's what the word of God teaches. He's not only sovereign, but he's wise. Application. When we refuse to be still, we rail against him. We're not only questioning his sovereignty, you're also questioning whether he's wise. Lord, do you know what's best for me? Here's another good question on theology exam. Is God wiser than you? Is he? If you put no, there's no help for you. Is he wiser than you? 
The problem comes when we refuse to act like he is wiser than we are. Lord, here's my idea. You should recognize how smart I am. You might look at something in your life that you feel absolutely regret over. You wish things were different. <laughs> I witnessed this in seminary, and I witness it now as a pastor. I hope I'm not being too close up and personal. I wish I would have married this one or that one. I wish I could exchange these kids. Does this church have a trade-in policy? Or we could let someone else have these rascals for a couple of days, and we'll take their rascals. But here's what I know for a fact. I will find out that your kids are more rottener than mine. And you will too, if you take mine. What do you think about that, kids? Have you poor? Have you been able to pour contempt on all your pride? That's for all of us, right? And we think, if I would have made this decision... Or that decision. Some of you ladies think. Whew. Right? The husband you gave me, the Lord God. Can you say you gave him to me in your wisdom? Odd as that may be. I am one. I know I can say that. Well, I want to remind you that our God knows all things real. And all things possible. Are you listening? He is committed to working every detail out in your life to your good and his glory. Be still and know that he is sovereign. Be still and know that he is wise. Here's another one. Be still and know that he is good. Some of us have straight. We're set straight in the absolute belief of the unrivaled sovereignty of God. Our God has create, uh, decreed all things that come to pass. You may even be square with the wisdom of God. Of course God is wiser than I am. I just wish he liked me. Are y'all listening? It's a good application, isn't it? God is in control. God is wiser than I am. But is he good? I just wish he liked me. You need to be convinced that not only that, is, that God is sovereign, he's all wise, but also you need to be convinced of the goodness of God. God is good. Now, do you know what that means? It means that our God has a moral quality of goodness which he gives, which gives him a kind and loving disposition toward his people. Be, be, understand this. And you say, well, I get it. And I get it too. It's not always easy to see how God is good in every situation. Sometimes it's easier to embrace sovereignty than it is goodness. Especially when we're on the short end of the stick. And we feel like God has not been good. Yet you must cling steadfastly to the truth that's given to us in Psalm 119.68. You are good and you do good. That's what the Bible says. Father, I don't know how all of this works out right. I don't know how this is going to turn out in this dark day of frowning providence in my life. But I believe your word. That's what you have to come to. I'm not sure how you will take this mess and fix it. As a matter of fact, God may have troubled the waters himself and made the mess. Because he does that, you understand. He troubles the waters. But I know you're good. And because God is good, you can still be still and know that he is good. And he will do good. You may have to wait through the night until the morning. Did you all read this psalm? He will speak to us. He will work 
in the morning. Wait on him. Let him work. So, hear me at this point. The goodness of God always triumphs. God is always looking to overcome evil with good. With no exceptions. What you intended for evil, Joseph said, God intended for good. Thank the Lord. Now, some of us have been walking with Christ for 60 years. If you have been, raise your hand. I know some of those Gans back there have. I see hands going up. 60 years. I repented and trusted Christ in 1979. 44 years ago. Just stop and reflect about that. Here's what I will tell you today. In 44 years, he has never done me wrong. 44 years. In 44 years, he has never been anything but good to me. Even when I didn't deserve it. I never deserved it. And neither did you. Good to me in every way. Whether I saw it or I did not see it. Be still and know that he is God. He's sovereign. He's wise. He's good over every situation and, and, and over every trial that comes into a believer's life. I hope you understand that that is the real test of your faith. The real test of your faith is not how happy you are in good times. The real test of your faith is where you stand in the bad times. In the bad times, do you still believe that God is sovereign? That he's wise and that he's good? So... To rest in God is to take comfort in who he is for you. The Lord you have is an everlasting rock. Let me read this verse to you. Isaiah 26, 3 through 4. The proud crown. Oh, that's the wrong one. I'm in 28. That was about drunkenness. Y'all probably need to hear that too, right? <laughs> Some. So, uh, Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. Listen to how good this is. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord your God is an everlasting rock. Take that word. Let it instruct your mind. Let it ignite your heart to the Lord. Trust in the Lord when you hear things like that. Say, yes, I bank my hope in the Lord. Now, let's finish this up. Ready? I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, in his sovereignty, he will display his glory, and nothing's going to stop it. Washington, D.C. can't stop it. No one can stop this. He's going to do this. The promise is of the exaltation his exaltation among all the nations is a promise that his lordship will be acknowledged one day and recognized among all the nations of the earth. Hear this. One of these days, every knee will bow. You ever read this in the Bible, Philippians? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Are y'all listening? Saudi Arabia will bow. China will bow. Indonesia will bow. The European nations that have traded away their Christian heritage, they're going to bow too. China will bow. America will bow. Mexico will bow. Canada will bow. Every knee will bow. 
He will be exalted among the nations. He is exalted now among the nation as the gospel is continuing to spread throughout the world. And he will one day be exalted among the nations as king. That's the promise from God's word. Every knee in this room is going to bow. That's up close and personal. Not just the nations, but you will. Every knee of every person in this building will bow. Every set of lips will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You can either confess Jesus is my Lord now for salvation, or you will certainly bow before him when he returns in all his glory. That's absolute truth. Either you bow today in submission and trust him as your Lord and Savior and believe and repent, or you will bow and confess him before judgment. So our confidence is that the future belongs to God and God alone. That's our hope. So the sons of Korah end with this refrain. Listen to it. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In other words, until all nations bow, until every tongue confesses, until everybody does this, and you're living on the face of this earth, remember that the God of Jacob is with us. He's with us right now as we approach a 2024 election. Now, it's more of a cosmic type thought. But what about when you're facing cancer? Or what about when you're facing kids that are wayward? What about when you're facing kids that do not know the Lord and you've been praying, praying, praying that they'll come and bow their knee and heart for the Lord, in front of the Lord Jesus Christ and before Him? Remember that God is sovereign. Remember that He is wise. And remember that he is good. And remember that he's your refuge. He's your strong tower. You, you find refuge in him. You find safety in him. We find peace. We find strength. We find grace to help us in our time of need. He's in the midst of Zion. He's in the midst of his people. Do I need to remind you once more how important it is to be a part of a church? You don't just go sign up and say, now I'm part of a church. But when Jesus saves you, you are the church. Y'all do realize that, right? The church here at FBCO is not these buildings. They're going to dissolve one of these days. They'll be gone. They're going to burn just like everything else on the face of the earth before God makes a new heaven and new earth. We're not talking about a building. We're talking about the people of God. So I encourage you. This is the gladness. This is the stability that you need in life because you are members of one body. If you're saved, it's the church. One day God in complete victory is going to put down all his enemies and cause wars to cease. Okay, last little hymn. I like uh, Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. David's going to give you another one, Be Still. But just listen to this one. I found it this week. It's called Stand Up My Soul, Shake Off Thy Fears. It's Isaac Watts again. Just listen to it. Don't tune me out. Don't zip your Bibles up before the invitation. Don't you love that? Back when they had the big study Bibles. Everybody would stick it down in that big folder, and they go, zip, 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 <laughs> right when I'm giving the invitation. Don't you love that, Brother Joe? I, I used to, don't zip your Bible up before I finish. All right? All right, listen. Listen, ready? Stand up, my soul, shake off thy fears, and gird the gospel armor on. March to the gates of endless joy where thy great captain Savior's gone. Whew. Hell and thy sins resist thy course. 
But hell and sin are vanquished foes. Thy Jesus nailed them to the cross and sung the triumph when he rose. Woo! That's good, isn't it? What though the prince of darkness rage and waste the fury of his spite, eternal chains confine him down to fiery deeps and endless night. What though thine inward lust rebel? Anybody been there? Tis but a struggling gasp for life. The weapons of victorious grace shall slay thy sins and end thy strife. Then let my soul march boldly on, press forward to the heavenly gate. There peace and joy, eternal reign, and glittering robes for conquerors wait. And boy, doesn't verse 6 really echo Psalm 46. Listen. There shall I wear a starry crown and triumph in almighty grace while all the armies of the skies join in my glorious leader's praise. That's what that last part is about, folks, is to draw you in to acknowledge who he is and to praise him, to be still and to know that he is God. Great God, we bow before you because you are sovereign. You are wise. You are good. And God, we acknowledge that. And though it may seem that our world is falling apart, that we are in dire straits, that we're not safe in the house, we can feel that way when the waves are crashing in. When we reflect back on decisions we've made and we think, wow, I should have zigged when I should have zagged. Lord, we need to rest in your sovereignty. Rest in your wisdom. Rest in Help us, Lord God, rest in your goodness. You are good, and you do good. Lord, help us think about that. Father, for the lost person, under the sound of my voice, it never works to be an enemy of God. It won't go well if you're an enemy of God. I pray, Father, that you would allow the truth of the gospel through your Holy Spirit To turn the mirror on the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of the gospel. And may they see you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. May we pour contempt on all of our pride. May we look at the cross and survey what you did for sinners. And Lord, may we, with the hymn writer, say, There's no way I could give a present that would compare to Jesus dying in my stead. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me and let's sing Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, have for me.
Well, praise the Lord. Glad you were here today, and I hope that most, I'm thinking most of you have a longer weekend. You'll be off tomorrow. I hope you get refreshed, and I'm glad you came to church today. Amen. Glad you came to gather with the church today, right, to worship the Lord. I have one more psalm that I'm going to preach next week, and then on the 17th, Brother David is going to preach. Y'all, y'all stoked about that? Well, the Bible says be ready to preach in season and out of season. So I just told him he was preaching. No, he's preparing to preach Psalm 95, which is one of my favorites about worship and what those words mean and what it means to you. So I will preach one more next Sunday. Brother David will preach on the 17th. And then on uh, the 24th, Lord willing, we will embark upon studying the book of Hebrews. So uh, get ready. Study. Uh, if you need a, the name of a pretty good commentary, some of you have asked. I'll try to shoot those out. Or we'll make them available out here and you can order one. Uh, that, that would really help you go through the book and learn as we preach the word together. Amen? Amen. God bless you. No service tonight. Don't forget that. And uh, hope you have a great weekend. Brother David? Hey, one more song quote. One more song. I can't okay. believe you missed this one. A Mighty Fortress. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Doth ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. So in a win-loss-starved country, you want to be a winner? You depend on God. You want to lose? You strive, you worry. Amen? God bless. Have a great day.